0: after I had been practicing for about seven or eight years, Saito Upandita came to America for the first time to lead a three-month retreat for a small group of students. And I was invited to be one of those students. And up until that time, I had practiced with uh, the Western Dharma teachers Joseph and Sharon and Jack, Christopher and Christina, Ruth Dennison. And I'd done all of my practice, all of my meditation at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, which is where Saito Upanthita was coming. So I began uh, practicing with him, and it was very difficult. It was very different uh, in my mind than the kind of practice I had been doing. And while I was trying my best, uh, it was clear to me and evidently to Pandita also that I just wasn't quite getting it. And there was one interview, we were seeing him for interviews six days out of seven, and in one interview he was asking me about my understanding of practice. And I said, well, I'm not sure. I thought you just sat and sat until, poof, one day you got enlightened. And he burst out laughing. And then he asked me, Who are your teachers anyway? (laughs) And of course, they were all practicing with him at the time. So I told him. And then he proceeded to tell me that you really need to understand the course of practice in order to practice effectively. I didn't know that I, I didn't know what I didn't know. I enjoyed sitting as painful and as difficult as challenging as it was. But that just awareness alone is not enough. You too may have asked yourself uh, at different times or various times in your practice. What the heck am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing this for? Or what does paying attention to the breath have to do with the Buddha's enlightenment? How is it that just doing what I'm doing here somehow over the course of time, experience, whatever, results in or produces liberation? Why am I doing this practice anyway? What's the benefit of practicing this way? How, how do I practice correctly, even? The answers to these questions are important because they will condition how you practice, whether you practice confidently or waveringly whether your aspiration is limited or vast, whether your effort is continuous or erratic, whether you understand in an ongoing way from your own personal experience or constantly refer to other authorities to affirm or confirm your experience. And really, whether your motivation is noble or ordinary, significant or insignificant. So even though, in some ways, these questions are far-reaching and difficult to answer, our tentative or our current answer to them is important because it conditions how we practice here there are innumerable benefits to practice. We don't have to wait until enlightenment, whatever that is, to to see the benefit, to feel the benefit, to recognize the benefit in our life. Yet, if we take one of those minor benefits, as the goal for practice, that may be all we get. That may be all we'll strive for, reach for, understand as the benefit of practice and all of our efforts only result in that. A limited aspiration or an agenda or a project in practice by necessity brings just a limited result. An exalted, noble, far-reaching aspiration in practice includes all that, all the minor benefits, if you will, up to and including liberation. (laughs) The Buddha, is one who uh, discovered what awakening really is, what liberation really is. There was a lot of talk about it in his day. There was a fervent uh, searching among many people, many different groups of people, for liberation and understanding or freedom or whatever their, their goal was. And there was no uniform agreement as to what that was even. But the Buddha realized something. And he codified his teaching of what he'd realized in what is known as the Four Noble Truths. Deborah mentioned them last night. And I just want to expand just just briefly on them tonight. The First Noble Truth is the Truth of Dukkha. Dukkha, as you probably know, is pain, vulnerability, insecurity, uh, the oppressive nature of conditions. And it is said that this truth is so hidden in our life that it has to be investigated diligently in order to discover it now we all experience pain we all experience insecurity at times but what the buddha's teaching points to that is different than our personal experience of pain and insecurity and vulnerability is he said this is the way it is for everyone all beings all the time it's not just my personal limitation. It's not just my fault. It's not just because I am an insecure little nervous wreck and haven't quite got it together yet that I feel this. This is the way it is for all beings. Oh, it's not just personal. It's a universal condition of life. And because of it, And as Deborah mentioned last night, it is to be investigated. And when the truth of dukkha is fully understood, liberation happens. Well, there's some some layers to this truth to be uncovered. And a large part of our practice is to stay present, pay attention, discover or uncover dukkha. The second noble truth is the cause of dukkha is craving or attachment, grasping, clinging. And this craving, clinging, grasping is to be abandoned. We do that in our practice here even as simply as when you notice the wandering mind, you notice the wandering mind, and you choose to let it go. That is discovering the grasping mind that's obsessing about something, and just choosing, I'm gonna let that go. And it's letting go of that clinging, that grasping, that brings the relief of the third noble truth, which is the end of craving, and therefore the end of dukkha is possible. When we let go of craving, we let go of dukkha, we let go of suffering. So much of our practice and your practice today has been in discovering how you hold on, when you hold on. When you act out unconsciously or obsessively, compulsively, and you notice it, and sometimes you can just let it go. Relief. But sometimes you cannot let it go. You want to let it go. You want to let go of your anger, your fear, your jealousy. You want to let it go. You know it's suffering. You know you're hanging on to something and can't. Well, the Buddha offered the fourth Noble Truth, which is the path to be developed by each one of us to free the mind from dukkha. The first training of the Noble Eightfold Path is to watch, observe and let go of intention that causes harm speaking and acting in such a way as to cause harm to yourself or others. And this is the first um, uh, the first practice. It's a mindfulness practice because we're paying attention to our intention. Where are we coming from when we're about to say or do whatever it is we say and do. And if we're able to, practice this training with some degree of momentum and continuity. It builds within our heart a a clarity in our relationships with one another. And while they may be difficult, as they often are, we're not antagonizing each other through carelessness or through intention to harm. This brings a place of harmony in our own heart harmony in your interpersonal relationships not bad <laughs> that's that'd be a, a major reduction in suffering for a lot of us but as i said sometimes you know even though you want to let go and you you're not acting out the mind is obsessing with all kinds of very unpleasant, difficult states of mind. And intentionally letting go is not a strong enough practice to uh, overcome that level of suffering. The Buddha offered the training of purifying the mind of these obsessions temporarily through developing awareness. And we can develop awareness of loving kindness to suppress them. We can develop the awareness of a color, a sound, the breath, changing experiences in our life. We can develop continuity of awareness on anything and it will, when there's enough momentum to it, it will prevent obsessing habits of mind from getting in, getting a toehold in the mind and just running away with you. Well, this is a great relief. If you can cobble together the continuity of awareness to keep the obsessing defilements out of the mind for periods of time, we get to enjoy the happiness of what's called a secluded mind. The mind that's not obsessed, the mind that is calm in a way, or it's tranquil, it's not agitated by obsession. Well that's, that's, that's a big relief too. If we had that capacity or to the extent that we develop that capacity to be mindful, drop in, do your metta practice, do your breath, uh, attention to the breath, whatever it is, just pay close attention, moment to moment, to be able to cut through all of the stress and all of the fear and the anxiety and the obsessing in the mind, what a relief. But as we know, conditions change. And when conditions change, we don't know what's gonna come up in the mind. And so the Buddha offered a third training, which is the training in understanding, purifying our understanding of wrong view. And this is through the development of insight, wisdom. When we understand things correctly we free ourselves from wrong understanding which causes suffering. This is the practice that we're developing here. While we're practicing the precepts to guard our speech and behavior and we're practicing continuity of awareness to purify the mind of the obsessions, the direction of our instruction here is to develop understanding through purifying our understanding of wrong views, seeing the way things really are. Because when we really see this, this is the way it is in the body, in the mind, in the environment, in our relationships, we won't be fooled. No matter what conditions arise in the mind or in our environment or in our communities, If we see this is the way it is, if we have that steadiness of mind and that ability to accept this is the way it is, we won't be fooled, we won't be caught, we won't be disillusioned because we know the truth. This is the path that leads to the happiness of peace, the peace of the unconditioned. Awareness knows. We've been practicing awareness and through that we know our moment to moment experience. But it is wisdom that understands. We can observe experience and understand it wrongly. Or we can observe experience and understand it rightly. Last night again Deborah mentioned that when we say in this context, right and wrong, we're not talking about some metaphysical, you know, ultimate. We're talking about those behaviors, beliefs, understandings that lead to suffering, wrong understanding. Those that lead to the end of suffering, right understanding. That's our definition of right and wrong. Does it lead to suffering or does it lead away from suffering? To develop wisdom that liberates us from wrong understanding, we need to know how to practice correctly. We need to know how to uh, pay attention and understand what we observe correctly. Now, wisdom comes from three directions, we could say. And the first direction is What we read, what we hear, what we are told by others. Some of it is wise, right wisdom, right understanding. Some of it may be not so right. It might be wrong understanding. But nevertheless, we take in what others say about life, purpose, practice. And we do our best with that that information is helpful. If it's right information, it'll be really helpful. If it's wrong information, we may suffer a bit before we realize that. But nevertheless, we all take in a tremendous amount of information. What I am saying tonight is information. With that information, we think about it. We can reflect on it. We can consider it in our own uh, way from our own perspective from our own life experience and using our own intelligence we can see well this is true or this is useful or this is worth trying or it's not and so we intelligently apply the information that we have received and arrive at some conclusion this is skillful or not, this is right understanding or not. But through practice, as we're doing here, we gradually develop insight, both personal insight at the psychological level, how we got to be how we are. We also gather deep information about the way things are. You know, you just watch over and over and over and over again. And without thinking about what you're seeing, understanding comes. I haven't seen any of this retreat, but there's often deer around Cloud Mountain here. And they're, they're walking around and they're not, they're, they're very, uh, they're almost tame. They're very unafraid of the meditators that come here. Now, if you really wanted to understand the nature of deer, could you do it by sitting in this room and thinking about them you you could pretend to (laughs) but it's clear that if you really want to understand the nature of deer you've got to observe them you just watch you just watch you see what they're doing if you watch for an hour you'll have an hour's worth of understanding if you watch for a day or a week you'll have a lot more and gradually through just observing, you will come to understand that which you have never been told, that which you've never read, that which you've never even thought about, but you know it because you've observed it. This is insight. This is the practice that we're doing here. We don't need to think so much. We don't need to read so much. But if we pay attention naturally, Understanding is going to come from what we have observed. This is how we liberate the mind. Yes, we do use the information. You know, if I said go out and pay attention to a deer, but you didn't know what a deer was, and you watched a tree, you, you, you wouldn't know much about deer. You might think you did, but you wouldn't. And so we need some information. We need some intelligence, but it's insight that is going to free the mind from wrong understanding. Meditation is the work of the mind. It isn't what posture you're in. It isn't whether you sit for an hour or 45 minutes or half hour or 20 minutes. It isn't whether you've been sitting for a year or 20 years or three decades. It's what you do with the mind. Whether you sit in a chair or you sit on a cushion or you sit on a bench, not important. Even sitting with your eyes closed may not be meditation if you're just spaced out but it's what you do with your mind in any activity, any posture, at any time of day. It can be when sitting on a cushion. It can be when walking to the dining hall. It can be when sitting on the toilet or eating a meal. If you're watching the mind, that's meditation. So we say meditation is the work of the mind. And essentially it is about noticing what's going on in the mind, what the mind is knowing, the experience that's happening, and how you're relating to it. Noticing when there is an unskillful or a wrong relationship to experience and changing it to a right relationship. When you see that the way you're relating to this experience is causing you or other people suffering, you have a choice. You can, you can choose to relate to it differently. That's wisdom. If you see the choice and don't take it, well, that's your choice. You can continue and choose to suffer or you can continue to be free of suffering. But at least you see the choice because you're paying attention and watching the mind. I don't know how it happens, but I've noticed over many years of, of teaching that when we say in the beginning, oh, you can use a primary object like the breath and to, 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 to develop your, the continuity of your attention, even though I never said it, somehow many people for longer or shorter periods of time Get the message, meditation is staying on the breath, exclusively. Uh, Well, uh, nobody ever told me that, but I did it for a long time too, so I know, I know how it happens. We just assume, oh, what they really mean is, you know, even though they're saying, notice other things, when when your attention is called to sensations in the body, notice them. When your attention is called to activity of mind, notice that. Somehow we think, oh, that's not really what they mean. What they really mean is, stay with the breath. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> we don't. We really mean. When you notice other experience, take note of that. There is a meditation, a tranquility meditation, that says, stay with the breath. As soon as you notice you're not on the breath, get back to the breath. We're not saying that. That kind of practice is relies on just Follow the instructions repetitively. You don't really have to think too much, just do it. You know it's a just do it practice? Just do it, stay with the breath, just do it. You're not on the breath, get back, do it. That kind of practice can develop into a very powerful momentum where the mind is going towards the breath, not noticing anything else, and the subjective feeling is, is that you're very calm. You feel really calm, nothing bothers you when when that momentum is really built up. So it's very seductive. I mean, we like that. We like not being bothered by stuff, internal or external. And so we get a taste of that through a little bit of continuity with the breath and that's what we get caught. But inside practice is different than that. You really have to use your mind You really have to hear the instructions that say, pay attention. You can use the breath to pay attention, but when your attention is called to other experience, notice it. This is the important distinction between a samatha, or a concentration practice, that leads to tranquility, and insight practice, which leads to freedom. It's your choice. You can go the tranquility path and get calm, or you can take the insight path and be free. The Buddha praised people who practiced both, and the Buddha taught instructions in both to many people. So it's not like there's no credentials or there's no point, it's valuable. One leads you to tranquility, one leads you to freedom. But to practice insight effectively, we need to use our information. We need to use our intelligence. and We need to develop insight. And we need to think about how to practice effectively. You know, this is, I'm going to give you permission to think, even though we never said it. Sometimes people think that thinking is the enemy of practice. It's not. You can think. It's OK to think. Did you ever have a teacher tell you that? It's OK to think. Just be aware that you're thinking. That's what I would ask. When you think, know that you're thinking. If you're thinking about practice, this can lead to wisdom, skill in applying the effort and energy that you do in practice. If you're just thinking about what makes you anxious and fretful and fearful and planning and scheming and strategizing, well, that's not so useful. Uh, That's just defilements running rampant in the mind. But if you're really thinking about practice and you're reflecting on your practice and how to practice more effectively, then that's skillful. That's meditation. That's developing understanding. Insight practice cannot be developed through blind obedience and following instructions repetitively. Cannot. You really do have to Know what it is you're experiencing and how to understand it. So. How do we meditate? How do we practice? Well, all of you have been practicing for some time so you know that mindfulness is observation just observing what is actually going on. The direct experience of this moment and feeling it. Not thinking about it, not trying to create some experience, not trying to look for or confirm what you've read in a book. It's about tuning into what's going on in your own body and your own mind. And even though it's your body and your mind and you're paying attention to it, Not to get so identified with it, but just to know this is the way it is right now and be willing to open to that, whatever it is. To know what you're feeling as you feel it. To not forget from one moment to the next that this is what practice is all about. And secondly, in order to observe and to know what your experience is moment to moment. It's helpful to relax. Now, when I say to relax, I mean both relax the body, which we know how to do. When I say relax the body, oh, okay, (laughs) we just relax. That's easy. And now when I say relax the mind, what do you do? You know, it's like, what do you do to relax the mind? Well, relaxing the mind is letting go of any agenda in your practice, letting go of any project, letting go of any task. It's just, don't try so hard to do anything, but rather just be present and recognize that. I'll speak more about that. So we try to relax body, mind. We try to observe directly our experience. And we just try to be aware on a moment-to-moment basis of the changing experience in the mind and the body. Whether you're attending to the body, the breath, sensations in the body, or the mind, thoughts, feelings, moods, etc. Not so important. Whatever you pay attention to is okay. In fact, whatever you experience is okay. It's observing whatever happens without judgment, or when you notice a judgment, just notice that. Somehow, a wrong understanding has crept into what I just said. Often. Because when we say to just relax and observe the way things are, sometimes, and you may have noticed this in yourself it gets to be really hard. Hard to do. And we squint our eyes and we hunch our shoulders and we grip our fists and we're trying to be with the present moment. But I would ask you now just to uh, feel what's going on in your right hand. You feel those sensations there? you feel those sensations in your right hand? Hmm? How much effort did that take? Did you have to hunch your shoulders, squint your eyes, clench your jaw to feel the sensations in the right hand? No, we do not. It's very easy. In fact, if you do any of those things, you can't feel the sensations in your right hand. You'll feel something else, tight, tense, elsewhere. The energy it takes to feel the sensations in your right hand, that's all the energy that's required in each moment of practice. That's all. You actually can be very relaxed, can't you? You don't have to do anything, you can just be relaxed. It's, it's in the precision of your mind, how accurately you direct your mind to those sensations, to that area of the body, and how open and receptive and present you are with what's going on there that determines whether you're actually mindful. Well, that, that, that's what awareness is. That's what the uh, awareness uh, leading to insight really is. How open, how sensitive, how careful, how continuous, how, um, how much you can feel what's actually going on in each moment. Nevertheless, even though practice could be so simple, most of us find it very difficult. And I want to spend some time talking about ways we make it difficult for ourselves. And I want to talk about it in terms of having a right attitude in your practice or having a wrong attitude in your practice. Because how you approach your practice. What attitude you're practicing with makes all the difference in the world. Now the challenge is, we come on a retreat, we've got seven days, we've got nine days, we've got three months, whatever it is. Here it's seven days. And we want to get something out of our effort being here. We don't want to just come here and do nothing and, and, and leave feeling disappointed. We want to do something, we want to get something for all our effort and we've heard or we know or we experienced the benefit of meditation or a retreat like this and so we want to get it. Already wrong attitude. <laughs> we don't have to want we don't, we don't have to want the benefit. If we do the work it'll come. We can know that there's a benefit but if we're trying to get the benefit there's some, you see, there's some clenching in the mind that's holding on to. I want it to be like this. I want it to be calm and clear and really relaxed and really insightful and freeing. And I don't want to be any suffering. Good luck. (laughs) It's not gonna happen, you know. And so we can know that that's what we want, but if we hang on to it, you can feel the mind grip. We have to let go. So we say that in practice, there's a couple things to pay attention to or a couple of questions to ask yourself. First, what is being known? What object or what experience is being known? It can be physical, it can be mental, it can be environmental. It can be subtle, it can be gross, it can be novel, it can be familiar. Just what is being known? the nature of the mind is to know. The mind is knowing all the time. It's knowing something. What? What is being known? So in the the moment that someone sneezes, hearing or sound is being known. We don't have to do anything about that. We don't have to say, okay, now I'm gonna pay attention to that sound that's gonna happen right now. We don't have to anticipate it. We don't have to expect it. We don't have to plan for it. If we're open and observing, we'll notice it. We'll notice what the mind is doing. The mind is knowing a sound, or the mind is knowing a sensation that occurs in the body, or the mind is knowing the breath. What is being known? That's the first question. The second question is, how am I relating to it? What's my relationship to this experience that's being known? Am I alarmed by it? Am I curious about it? Am I angry about it? Am I you know, kinda of like interested in it? Am I what's your relationship to? Someone sneezes. What's your what's your relationship? Well, with all the with all the talk about, you know, flu and Anything else, you might think, oh, geez, somebody's sneezing. I hope they covered their breath. I hope they didn't use their hand. I hope they into the, I don't know. Well, it's just a sound. Look at the suffering. You know, what's your relationship to it? Alarm, concern, irritation, fear. That's where the suffering happens. Suffering doesn't happen because you heard a sound. Suffering happens because of your relationship to it. That's what we want to be paying attention to. Whether it's a sound, a sight, a sensation, a thought, not so important. There's gonna be all of those things and more, continuously, as long as there's a mind, there's gonna be something happening. Something's gonna be known, moment after moment, for a long time. Suffering occurs in the relationship to it. You can't control, we can't control whether someone's gonna sneeze, whether there's going to be a warm day, a cold day, whether we're going to like the food or not, but our relationship to it, that's what we can work with. So what is being known? What's your relationship to it? The second, or the third, I should say, the third question you want to ask yourself is, what state of mind am I practicing with? What state of mind am I practicing with? Why? Because we may come into the, to use this example, sorry, we'll keep using this example, we may come into the room thinking, oh, it's so quiet in here. I'm glad it's quiet. I'm glad we're all sitting together and it's quiet. You know, it's supposed to be quiet, right? Well, sometimes it's not. If you have the idea in your mind, it's supposed to be quiet in the meditation hall. your attachment to that belief will cause you suffering. So we come and we're kind of on guard. We're just on guard. Who's making any noise? Somebody come in late. Somebody's shuffling around. Somebody get up and left early. It's not that somebody got up and left early. It's not even the sound they made. It's your belief, your thought. It shouldn't happen. That's what's causing the suffering. That's what we want to look at. What is the attitude in the mind that I'm practicing with? There's the object that's being experienced, the sound. There's your relationship to it, Eh, 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 eh. irritation. But what's the attitude? What's what's going on in the mind that sets up this suffering? What state of mind are you practicing with? Are you practicing with the hypervigilant? I'm going to notice everything. Or are you relaxed? Is there an open, tolerant, accepting state of mind? Or is there a critical, hyper-vigilant, ready to pounce state of mind? Makes a big difference, doesn't it? So we want to be observing that, not only what's happening moment to moment and our relationship to it, but where are you coming from? Where is your practice coming from? What's the fuel in your practice, so to speak? What state of mind are you practicing with? So these three things you want to be monitoring on an ongoing basis in your practice. Now, what is a right attitude? We have a pretty good idea of wrong attitude. I'm going to identify some more of them later, but what is the right attitude to take in practice? First, relax. Observe, pay attention, look closely, and understand what it is you're observing. When you're hearing a sound, know that you're hearing a sound. When you're breathing, as the Buddha said in the discourse on mindfulness, when breathing in, know you're breathing in. That's it. When you're breathing out, know you're breathing out. When hearing a sound, know you're hearing a sound. When taking a step, know you're taking a step. When thinking a thought, know that you're thinking a thought. When feeling angry, know that you're feeling angry. When feeling something pleasant, know that you're feeling something pleasant. It sounds so, I mean, well, it sounds like this is kindergarten stuff, isn't it? Well, no, it isn't. We go through life experiencing all kinds of stuff without knowing it at the time it occurs. That's mindlessness. don't we? Let me ask you this. Today, somewhere today, did you have a wandering mind? You know, the mind wanders off into some fantasy land, some memories of the past, some plans for the future, some fantasy land, during which time you were not aware of it. Completely lost. The mind wanders off and you're in la-la land. You don't know it. You don't know that you're thinking, you don't know what you're thinking about, you don't know what you feel about what you're thinking about, you don't know how long you've been thinking, you don't know how you got there, and you don't know when you're coming out. But luckily, eventually, it comes to an end, and there's awareness again. And in that moment of awareness, even though for the last 2 minutes, 5 minutes, 20 minutes, you are unaware, you can look back and you can remember what you were thinking, right? Can't you? That happens, right? Now the mind was knowing, but there was no awareness of it. We do that all the time. Even driving. Did you ever get in a car to go someplace? You get there and you think, I didn't notice a thing on the way. We did, the mind noticed a lot. We got there, we drove, we did fine. Not aware though. Not aware of what the mind is knowing. In this practice, we're not trying to make the mind know anything. The mind is knowing. We're just trying to develop the awareness of what is being known. It doesn't matter what's being known. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings, memories, plans, emotions, doesn't matter. It's can we be aware of it. That's what we're working on. Waking up the awareness. Can we accept First, can we allow this moment to be as it is and can we accept it? Can we just accept this is, this is the way it is? Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's not. Right attitude is to be willing to allow anything and to accept it. When I say accept, I really mean acknowledge, to acknowledge it. I don't mean accept like, oh, this is good. We don't accept injustice. We acknowledge injustice but we don't accept it, that's not okay. Nevertheless, it does happen and so we acknowledge it, we accept, this is the way it is right now or for now. And that's an important little qualifier to add to your uh, your little uh, mantra of recognition. This is the way it is for now. That for now is a great relief because There is this habit in the mind to eternalize momentary experience. You know, you get angry at someone and you think, I'm so angry. And there's a feeling, I'm always going to be angry at that person. I'm never going to get over this. Or you fall in love and you think the same thing. (laughs) I'm so in love. And you think, that's the way it's going to be forever. It's not. So you add this little qualifier. This is the way it is, for now. And it builds in the recognition that everything changes. Everything is impermanent. And that's the way it is. This is the way it is, for now. Another quality of uh, correct attitude, or an attitude that leads to the end of suffering, or, or does not contribute to suffering, is to not appropriate the experience as me or mine or who I am. Not to identify with it and not to appropriate it as mine. Well, why do we do that? What we experience in the body, in the mind, in the environment has arisen due to innumerable impersonal conditions that we, for the most part, cannot control. Stuff happens. Stuff happens. The mind gets to experience it. So much of what happens we can't control. Why should we appropriate and say, this is mine, this is me, this is my fault, this is mine, when in fact you can't control it, you can't start it, you can't stop it, you didn't make it happen, you can't make it stop. It's just happening and there's no there's a knowing of it, and sometimes there's awareness of it. So as you pay attention to all that you see, all that you observe moment to, unfolding moment to moment, remind yourself, this is the unfolding of impersonal conditions. It, just, it, it feels like it's me, I, I, I'll admit. It feels like it's my body, it's my mind. I'm making it happen, it's happening to me. But just periodically remind yourself, not me, not mine, not who I am. The Buddha suggested in his second discourse to the, to the monks that he was teaching, he said, thus you should you consider all things as not me, not mine, not who I am. Why is it important to hear that? It's important to hear that because it plants a seed of right understanding. Right to understand. The understanding that leads to the end of suffering. Now right now, we may not believe that. We may not experience it that way, but we've planted the seed. If we continue to practice, or as we continue to practice, we will gradually develop the understanding that this is the right way of seeing things. This is the right way of understanding. Right in the sense of this is the way to understand if you want to reach the end of suffering. Another aspect of right attitude in practice is to be willing to endure unpleasantness. I don't mean to grit your teeth and tolerate it and endure it, but I mean to openly to say to yourself, I can choose to experience unpleasantness and that's okay. We all experience unpleasantness. Unpleasant physical sensations, unpleasant emotions, unpleasant mental states, they come. It's not your fault, so to speak. They come due to conditions, most of which are out of your control. If we can remind ourselves to, openly accept or acknowledge them and feel them without resistance, without that just kind of, I'll put up with it, I hate it, but I'll put up with it. But just say, well, this is the way it is. It's not nearly as painful and doesn't cause nearly as much suffering as when we resist it. We just need to remind ourselves. Discomfort, unpleasantness, happens. Let it, just let it happen. Don't make it worse by resisting it. Another aspect of right attitude to be attentive to is watching the mind or the habit or the capacity of mind to judge and evaluate. The mind has the capacity to look at two apples, clones of each other, even, and say, this one's better. To look at two people and say, I like this one, better than that one. To look at two anythings, to feel two anythings, to listen to two pieces of music, two people playing the same piece of music and say, this one's better. The mind has the capacity to make very, very refined distinctions. That's not the problem. We want to know how to do that. It allows us to make really wise choices in our life. If we pay attention. And we need to pay attention in order to make wise choices in our life. The problem comes when this capacity of mind to make very refined distinctions, working overtime and we get attached to the results. Then we end up living a life of bias and discrimination and preference, liking and disliking that causes a tremendous amount of suffering. In practice, we wanna be on guard for this. We wanna recognize the mind is going to make very refined distinctions. We have to be careful not to assign value to those distinctions. If we say this is better than that, we've set ourselves up to suffer. If we say this is what it is, and that's what that is, different, yes. And we recognize that we can accept both equally without resistance, without preference, without liking or disliking, without making one better, and one worse without making one good and one bad. This is an important part of practice. Because experience happens. Pleasant and unpleasant happen. We can't control it. Let's not make it worse by preferring the pleasant over the unpleasant. Another aspect of right attitude to bring to practice, to remind yourself in practice, is to be careful not to indulge in pleasant experience. I didn't say avoid pleasant experience. Pleasant experience comes, but we need to be on guard, alert to the habit of the mind to indulge in it. When I say indulge in pleasant experience, I mean feel it, without awareness, just feel it. Just ah, Yeah, without awareness. We want to keep our awareness there. Some people say mindfulness can ruin a good meal because you pay so much close attention to every little thing, You, you know, the taste is just one flicker. You know, you're seeing, you're tasting, you're crunching, you're feeling the texture and after you've chewed 20 times in the mouth, does that is that as pleasant as the taste? No. So if you're paying attention, the taste is just such a minuscule part of the meal. Hard to enjoy. Well, what we want to do with pleasant experiences: is pay attention so that we don't get caught in indulging mindlessly. So too, we want to be careful not to get caught in resistance to unpleasant experience. I've mentioned that before. Finally, one further element of Right Attitude in Practice is to watch the tendency to embellish your experience with meaning and value. Things are just what they are. We don't have to make a big drama out of very ordinary experience. I call it dramatizing the ordinary. You know, things happen. They're very ordinary, and yet, because it's happening to us, or we think, we make a big deal about it. This is the cause of suffering. This is the cause of suffering. So these are some of the elements of right attitude. The wrong attitude, or the, the elements of the wrong attitude in practice are to be critical, in your evaluation, to be uh, expecting or anticipating good experience, so often. I mean, who among you has come to the retreat saying, well, I expect to have some pretty bad experience, pretty unpleasant. You know, I expect it's going to be really difficult. Mostly we come hoping that it's going to be calm and clear and bright and mindful. At least I do. (laughs) We need to be on guard for that or pay attention to when we get, when expectation or anticipation creeps into our attitude. When that's the place we're practicing from, expecting good experience. You know, one of our uh, student friends said, you know, there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. (laughs) Why? Because you come in, you have a good sitting, or at least part of it's a good sitting. And you think, ha, now I got it. Finally, ah, the rest of the retreat's gonna be like this. (laughs) And so you come in looking for it, the next sitting, it is long gone. And we struggle, we hang on, we're looking, we're expecting, we're anticipating, we're hoping for, what we've experienced before, or what we've heard. You know, you read Jack Kornfield's book on mm, perils and promises of the spiritual life, and say, yeah, wow, I want those per- promises. Forget those perils. Um, <laughs> you know, and we go looking for it. If you're looking for anything other than what is, there's suffering there, wrong attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, man, there are, there are just so many elements of wrong attitude to uh, we could speak about. One, another is having the sense of this shouldn't be happening now. You know, it's like, hey, I've been here three days. I've been practicing. I've I've been practicing for a few years. This shouldn't be happening now. And this wrong understanding creeps in. And if we don't see it, we'll be practicing from this place of not allowing what, we think shouldn't be happening. There's other more grandiose um, manifestations of wrong attitude. One is um, practicing with the idea of improving yourself. You know, the self-improvement retreat. <laughs> self-improvement happens. I mean, it happens. You don't, have to th- you don't have to plan it. You don't have to work on it. You don't have to conceive it that way. If you practice, you'll become a better person. No doubt about it. It happens. But if that's your agenda, if that's your goal, if that's your, what you're hanging on to, it's a problem. Wrong attitude. Because you'll be editing all your experience through the filter of, is this what a good person, an improved new me would be doing or feeling or expecting or thinking? When we censor any aspect of our experience, any element of our experience, there's suffering there, there's contraction in the mind. And in practice, the practice is to open to the whole package. The whole of the upwardly spiritual life and the whole of the downwardly headed experiences. You can't just open in one direction. When we open the mind, we open the heart, we're going to see both the light and the dark. And we have to be prepared for that. And if we're only trying to create a spiritual sense of ourselves, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be really disappointed. And so to watch this agenda, this project, I like Deborah's word last night. Sometimes we get a project in our practice. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to work on my father issues this retreat. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe your father issues are going to come up and you're going to work on them, but to have that agenda, very limiting. Sure, to cause tension in the mind, contraction in the mind. These are just some of the attitudes, wrong attitudes that can creep in, and elements of right attitude to pay attention to and to arouse in your practice. And as I said, as we, as we move on in, in practice, um, Gradually we begin to, to notice what is arising, our relationship to it, and where we're coming from. And through that openness, we can learn to open to everything. And we will eventually open to everything. And through monitoring how we're relating to experience, we develop equanimity. And equanimity is the doorway, it's the platform from which we access the unconditioned. Through the development of equanimity, the non-reactive mind, the mind that doesn't fall into reactivity to anything, stable, clear, calm, from that platform, the mind can access the unconditioned nibbana. And this is, the, this is the direction of path. This is why we pay attention to the breath. This is why we pay attention to single steps single sensations, single thoughts in the mind to see all what is happening, how are you relating to it, where are you coming from? And when there's an establishment of equanimity, an enduring equanimity, the sense of well-being in our mind is unshakable. Equanimity provides the foundation for a sense of well-being that doesn't depend on whether an experience is pleasant or unpleasant, familiar, novel, subtle or gross, whether you like it or not. And that sense of well-being is uh, one of the benefits of a life of practice. Thank you for listening.